What's up everybody, Jason McCourty here. We're here for you guys, kind of a special edition of double coverage. As you guys can see, uh, my sidekick, co-host, whatever you guys want to refer to him, uh, he's here too, Dev. Uh, we're going to give you guys a, a special show with everything going on in our country. Uh, we wanted to take the time to sit down and really address those issues. Uh, Dev, welcome everybody to the show. Yeah, welcome. I mean, we have a really special guest. It's not every day. And I know if you watch this show, uh, you know, we have athletes on here. We've had a uh, host uh, in the NFL world. We've had some of our college teammates uh, as recent as last week. Um, but this is special. You know, we have someone who has, I mean, tremendous amount of experience, whether it be in law enforcement, uh, as a lawyer, um, also, right, that's, that's, that's my part. Football. That's my part. Uh, that's my part. Well, you, you we, asked me to start. So yeah, just welcome everybody. Like I said, okay, special guest. Uh, his name is M. Quentin Williams. He's been he's done so much. Uh, I'm going to give you guys a list. I don't this is only a snippet of the things that he's done uh, throughout his career and throughout his journey. But an attorney, an author, a prolific international speaker, a former FBI agent, a former federal prosecutor. And he's also held, held positions as an executive in the NFL and the NBA. Currently, he serves as the chairman and chief executive officer of his own law firm located in uh, New York City. He's also uh, started and, and runs his own marketing and media company, which is based in Los Angeles. And he also has strong ties to the community and which why we have him on our show today. Uh, started his own non-for-profit dedication to community, which focus on empowering individuals and communities to achieve their business and societal goals. Uh, you guys can learn a lot more about that at de dedication to community. Uh, Dot com. And lastly, uh, Quinn authored a book uh, titled A Survival Guide, How Not to Get Killed by the Police. Uh, Quentin uh, has done tremendous work uh, in this field and he is very knowledgeable about it. And that's why we wanted to take the time uh, to bring him on the show. And for you guys that are there listening and you're watching, uh, any questions that you have, just type them in the comment box. We'll try to get to them. Uh, we're just going to have a really good dialogue today and talk about uh, the issues that are plaguing our country. So uh, without further ado, I want to bring M. Quentin Williams uh, onto the show and welcome him uh, here to Double Coverage. Really appreciate that. Thank you very much. This is uh, this is an honor. No, welcome to the show. We uh, we appreciate you taking the time. So uh, we won't waste any of the viewers' time. You know, Jason uh, went into you know small details about the things you've done, but um, I guess just let the people know your journey, what you've been through. You know, we heard you know some of the accomplishments and different things like that, but you know, what was the process and, and how did that take place? Uh, I'm living a blessed journey, really am. I, uh, I was born on the island of St. Thomas to a single, a single woman who, uh, who was abandoned by my biological father after he found out that she was pregnant. And when that happened, she decided that she was going to come back to where she was from, New York, and raise me. And so we moved back to New York. My mother was from a very well-to-do uh, community in New York, but when she left home to go to St. Thomas and met my biological father, she was disowned by her family because my mother's a white Jewish woman and my biological father was a black man. And this was at the height of the civil rights movement. So she was disowned. She came back to New York and we lived in poverty for the first five years of my life on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And then we moved up to Yonkers because the crime was so bad down there. I asked her at three years old if we could get out of there. 
and she moved us back up to uh, moved us up to New York uh, Yonkers in the county of Westchester uh, just to get away from the crime. But Yonkers is plagued by crime. Yonkers has a lot of has had a lot of political corruption and education problems. So all of that is what she moved us into, thinking it was a better life. I don't know if it was any better at the time, but Yonkers now is getting its act together, doing great things, and we are proud of Yonkers. I did all my schooling there, K through twelve, had a reading issue, and still got through schooling and did fairly well and got an athletic scholarship to go to Boston College. I played with Doug Flutie for a couple of years at BC. Very proud of those moments in my life. And uh, through the reading issues, I was able to apply to law school. And because of great mentorship, I got in and then I graduated and I started to practice law. I was recruited by the FBI when I was in law school. And I decided that I was going to do that, even though I didn't want to be a law enforcement officer because law enforcement officers are the ones who came to get us in Yonkers. And I didn't know that I should become one. I could become one. And uh, I was immediately undercover for a couple, of, a couple of years when I was an FBI agent and then had the opportunity to become a federal prosecutor. So I took it. And uh, that was a great experience. Did that for a very short period of time before getting into sports. I was recruited by the NFL the Jacksonville Jaguars, and then the NBA, and uh, worked for all three. And then after after leaving the NBA, I was uh, given the opportunity to pursue my entrepreneurial, uh, my entrepreneurial dreams, and I opened up my law firm, a media company, and my calling, which is what you talked about, dedication to community. Yeah, definitely. And let's talk a little bit about the community. Uh, obviously, uh, police and community relationship is something that's huge and that's something that's plaguing our country right now. And uh, I know you have said, you know, when communities and there's distrust, it creates a sense of panic within uh, communities when you don't trust the police that are neighbor that are governing and walking around uh, your neighborhood. Um, how do we fix that? And what do you mean by that, that, that panic? Uh, what exactly is environment does it create? We've been living in a panic for the last 10, 20, 30 years. It's really been very unsettling. Now it's heightened. What you're seeing now is more of a revolution. Uh, but we have been living in this panic. And I've been telling people that we were heading towards this revolution because we were we were not acknowledging our history. We were not acknowledging who we are as a as a nation and who we have been as a nation and until we do that we're we're not going to heal so a lot of people want to just heal that's all they want to do is get right to healing but you don't get to healing unless you go through a reconciliation process of listening and learning and understanding and acknowledging acknowledging Wow. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, and we'll get into next where we're going to figure out what's going on with uh, Q's audio. Um, but uh, going through his book and just hearing some of the stories, um, you know, that he's went through. And, and I think that's what we'll get into next where, you know, we don't want to just present a guy and we tell you his background and you're just like, well, what does he know about being black and being in a community? You know, he's an FBI agent. And I think that's some of the things we want to talk about, you know, whether it's an athlete, an FBI agent, a lawyer, a doctor. Um, I think sometimes in, in our society and in our communities, we feel like those people are different. They're above, they're here, they're there. Um, and we kind of just want to address that. And here are some of the things he's went through, even as you name it, FBI agent, lawyer, all of those different things. Um, we want him to get into some of that, too, as well, because that is what we see we see in so many communities um really throughout the country doesn't matter where you're at yeah because like like you're saying uh oh we got q back uh, and the thing we wanted to, to touch on with you is when we talk about these relationships uh you've had your own encounters uh with police officers and even being an fbi agent you're not above being a black man in our country and we just kind of wanted you to take us through uh what it was like for you uh And we, we uh, sorry about that. Yeah, uh, trying to get him back on here audio wise. But uh, Q had his own running with the police and uh, you sometimes think you can become immune to it. And we sometimes think, hey, like uh, he could be a professional athlete. Or he could be this, that and the third. He's not living the same life uh, as I am. So we want to get in uh, with Q about what it was like for him when he had to encounter police. And uh, like Dev said, he wrote a book about a survival guide of how to stay alive when you encounter the police. And we'll get into just what that means when you say that and why you should have to think about um, why you need to do everything the right way to stay alive but I don't want to take too much of a story and allow him uh, you know to really touch on that um, but obviously go ahead Dad. And, and I think while, while we wait um, you know even for us you know I think back to growing up um, and you know I think when you talk about these things when you're at a status that you are now, people don't understand what you've been through. So, you know, both of us, you know, we obviously we grew up um, in Section 8 apartment where it was predominantly um, minorities, you know, African-Americans. Uh, we had some white people in, in our complex, but just not many. But our, our elementary school, on the other hand, had a lot of white kids. Um, and that's where we learned how to interact and be around. But I still remember 12 years old. We go to a park, and if you're from Rockland County, we were playing two-on-two -two basketball. If you know, going against us two-on-two -two basketball, if you're around my age, it was tough. It was tough to beat us. And we're at a park, and we're playing uh, two white kids, and we beat them, you know, the first game. We beat them pretty good. And I still remember we played that game, and after the game, they call us monkeys. And you remember being there, and you're like, wow, okay, we're, we're monkeys now. And... You know, I think right away your reaction is like, let's fight, like let's whoop, let's whoop these dudes. And we probably could have. And I think they knew that we knew that. Um, but instead we were like, well, let's just play again. And instead of fighting them and we beat them and we didn't let them score a point. And at that time, as a 12 year old, you don't really know how to process that other than that's just the way the world is. You know, you grow up around people and older guys tell you like, hey, expect this, do this. So you kind of expect it. But the first time it happens, it shocks you a little bit. And I think from there on out, you always have your guard up. You're always prepared 
when you go, if I go to a mall, even to this day, you know, I have money, I have success. If I go to a mall to this day, I won't walk in a designer store for security guards in front unless I know I'm buying something because I know they're going to follow me and I don't want to make them right. I don't want to walk in and be like, well, yeah, we knew that guy wasn't going to buy anything. And I think we all subconsciously think about that um, as black men and black women in our country. And it's wrong. Um, but I think that's some of the things that if you ask some other people who know me, they probably don't think I think about those things like he's fine. Um, but those things constantly come up um, in our country and, and, and black people have to deal like we can't turn that off. Yeah, without a doubt. And uh, I think we, we have Q back up and running, uh, looking Apologize good, audios uh, back going, no problem. Uh, obviously, with a pandemic going on, we're all dealing, uh, whether it's whether it's kids running in and out of Zoom yes, calls. We all have that, too. It's, it's always something that we know. Uh, anybody that's watching, they know our kids are liable to come in at any time. But uh, we just wanted to get into a little bit. We talked about police community relations. I know you got cut off a little bit, but uh, we wanted to also address uh, you've had your own run ins uh, with the police officers. Yes. And we talked about you being an FBI agent, a federal prosecutor, and all of these things and titles that sometimes we think will separate us from other people or people that look like us. And you still walk around, you're a, a black man in America, and just wanted to talk about what that was like for you, that experience of, of, of what happened with you. Well, in my book, I, I put that, I write about four different instances of being approached by the police, and you just mentioned stores. I was thinking about it the other day. I don't leave a store without a receipt. I never leave without a receipt. I don't care if I bought one little thing for 25 cents. I have a receipt in my hands because I always want to make sure that if somebody stops me, I have proof. So when I, when I went to Newport, Rhode Island, I was arrested uh, back in the 90s. I was arrested and I was an FBI agent. Um, I was just there for vacation and about 15 minutes after I got there, I was I found myself in cuffs in the back of a cruiser because earlier in the day, somebody who quote unquote fit the description uh, that I had put a gun to somebody's chest and I happened to be an FBI agent. I had a gun on me, but I was stopped. They didn't believe I was an FBI agent. They, they arrested me, put me in the car and it was a it was a very demeaning feeling. I had in the pit of my stomach after a few hours of being in the car and pleading with them to call my office because my office knew where I was earlier in the day. I was with my special agent in charge. I was pleading with them and they finally released me after three hours of disbelief that I was an FBI agent and that I wasn't in town when, when that incident happened. So. These, these incidents have strengthened me. That's the way I look at it. They strengthened me. But at the same time, it's like having that receipt when you leave a store. There's something, every time I leave a store and I have a receipt in my hand that I'm thinking about that takes a little bit out of me. And that's what I think we need society to realize, that there is systemic fairness for some, but not everybody. Mm -hmm. And equity, systemic fairness, needs to be spread across everybody. There's a reason why I'm concerned about having a receipt. And some of my friends are not worried about having a receipt. They, they don't even take a receipt. Or they throw it out before they get to the door. I've never done that. And it's always because 
I have an underlying concern that somebody may target me and say that I'm stealing something when I'm not. And it's so true. And you mentioned, like, you tell this story in your book and, um, you know, just by the title of your book, How to Stay Alive. So, you know, how did you stay alive? Like, you talk about doing certain things. Um, and I'll just ask you right now without even letting you answer and then following up. But, you know, knowing some of those things you say, like, right away, people are going to be like, no, like, I I'm not with that. Uh, Quentin, you know, Q, he's selling out. That's not right. That's not going to help black people. That's going to put us down more. Like, how do you combat these two things? Like, you stayed alive. Um, and we've seen in our country instances where there's men and women, black men and women who haven't stayed alive. Um, just talk about that dispute, that back and forth uh, in the black community. Yeah, I, so it's um, when I came out with my book, uh, my book is called A Survival Guide, How Not to Get Killed by the Police. When I came out with that book, with that kind of a title, I came out with that book because I used to represent, still do, entertainers and athletes who at times would go back to their old neighborhoods with a little bit more money than they should have, a bigger car than they should have, perhaps a lot of jewelry, and they would stand out and then they would hang out with some of their old friends who weren't doing the legitimate things that they were doing. And it would be two in the morning and I would get these calls and they would be pulled over because they're hanging out with the wrong guys and they would say, how do I not get killed? How do I not get killed by the police? So when I, when I came out with the book, I said, that's what I'm calling it, How Not to Get Killed by the Police. And that title, for some reason with both law enforcement and the communities, especially challenged communities, it created a stir. Because with law enforcement, there was a supposition that I was saying law enforcement is willy-nilly killing uh, people. And then with the communities, communities were saying you're victim-blaming. So I had to come with authenticity to him and tell him why I wrote this book, which was to save my son's life. I needed my son to get home safely, and that's all I could think about. I wanted him, I wrote this book before he was born, but I wanted to have these conversations with my son when he turned eight years old, he's about to turn eight years old, to teach him about relationships, to teach him about how to engage with the police, to teach him about complying comply, 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 and then complain later, because I just wanted him to be safe. And so this is a pro-law enforcement book. It's a pro-community uh, pro book. But that's why I came out with this, to save my son's life. And then it just morphed into something bigger than a book, and it morphed into this initiative where we go around and we actually teach law enforcement how to serve better. I don't like the word policing. I hate it. Because policing assumes something, and it and it was it was connected to overseeing. That's what that word is, and we know what overseeing means. So I like the word serve. I'm a very I'm a very I'm very much attuned to words, and service is what law enforcement should be providing, not policing. Now, uh, like you said, what about the black individual? Philando Castile, you're pulled over. You do everything that the so-called handbook tells you to do. You're at 10 and 2. You roll your windows down. The lights are on. Your license and registration, insurance, all of that's in plain sight. You're complying. Yes, officer. No, officer. You do it all the right way. And this person doesn't walk away with their life. 
and the community's outraged. And now they pick up the book or they hear what you're saying and it's just comply, comply, comply. And it's just like, all right, I comply. I don't well, I don't get to drive home. I don't comply. I don't get to drive home. For one, it's not our responsibility to get home alive just because we ran a stop sign or we were going a little too fast. How do you combat that? Like there are people that are just, I'm too angry to comply because I don't know whether I comply or not if I'm still going to make it back home. Such a great question, and it's a challenging question. But 100% of the time, if there's no compliance, you lose. You just lose. There's no battle. I've never seen a battle on the street won by some uh, by a person, uh, civilian. Law enforcement always wins. So what what I stress is that this enhances the opportunity to get home safely. Nothing guarantees it. But it definitely increases the odds of getting home safely. So when, when I say comply, I don't mean comply, 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 and then that's it. If you are treated unprofessionally, you must make law enforcement accountable. You must file reports, not just with the, the law enforcement department, the agency, but with the district attorney's office, state attorney's office, with the FBI. At every level, you must absolutely make law enforcement, uh, make them accountable. So, yes, Philando Castile, he did everything right. Absolutely did everything right. That's why we teach law enforcement. That's why we are guiding law enforcement with policy. Because that officer should never have been a law enforcement officer. So it's in the selection where that, that system failed. Selection and then training and then discipline. If you fail with any one of those three pieces, you will fail as a law enforcement agency. If you select the wrong people, there's nothing you can do to train them up to be incredible. If they're wrong for law enforcement. If you select the right people and don't train them well, you're going to fail as well. And then if you select and train the right people, but you don't discipline when you need to discipline, there's no accountability. So then people are going to be running roughshod. So you have to have every one of those phases in complete order in order to have success as a law enforcement agency. And with Philando Castile, it was all the law enforcement selection process. The guy should not have been a law enforcement officer. And if they found out about some of these behavioral issues, he should have been disciplined and let go. And, and that brings us to the next question. So you being a, a lawyer, after, you know, after what happened to you in Rhode Island, um, like you said, you have different friends, entertainers, rappers. Um, have you ever been able to pro prosecute and try one of these complaints or, you know, a, a cop's excessive behavior? Um, and if you did, what was the result of that? How did that uh, turn out for you? Well, I haven't I haven't uh, investigated other than the civil, I've investigated civil rights um, against police, but I've never prosecuted one. They usually, it, usually it works out that um, witnesses are not that credible. So you, you have to have some other evidence. And that's why right now we're seeing a larger number of law enforcement officers being held accountable because of body cameras and because of cell phones. But understand for decades, we didn't have this kind of technology, this kind of accountability. So 
there was no way to combat witnesses or to um, to combat, and the witnesses were the law enforcement agencies too. So when the law enforcement officer says, "I did cert- certain things," it was just taken that they that that was the truth. But now with these body worn cameras and with cell phones, we have some other way to make them accountable for the truth. That's why we're seeing in Minnesota, we're seeing everybody get charged. They should have been charged immediately, but we're seeing them get getting charged now because it's indisputable. Imagine if that cell phone footage wasn't there. What would have happened? Yep. We know what would have happened. And, and what do you say, because, you know, I've been in this field and I've tried to learn from a lot of different experts. And one thing that always comes up is the strength of police unions. Everyone talks about how strong the unions are, how strong the contracts are for, for cops. And, um, you know, there's different protections, immunity. Um, you know, a cop usually has to do something, you know, either several or, you know, a couple of times with the same pattern uh, for really, you know, something to be done to him, either fired, um, either tried and charged. Like, what do you say to people when they say we need to cut down some of the strength of the police unions, even though we understand the duty and the job it is to serve the community, how hard that is. But what is your what is your thoughts on that, you know, of, of trying to take some of that power away from the police unions? I'm, I'm pro union in general. Uh Police unions have to just, they have to live with transparency, though. And that's why communities have not trusted law enforcement. Many communities haven't trusted law enforcement because of the lack of transparency. So I believe that it's important for police unions, in order to protect the safety of their membership, that they issue transparency as a policy because then the community will trust them and the community will protect law enforcement. If a community trusts law enforcement, they will, it will galvanize the community to get behind them. So instead of being closeted about issues and then increasing the void, which then creates greater safety risks for law enforcement, it's better to be transparent and to Build partnerships with communities because ultimately what you want as a police union, as a police agency, what you want is you want to be in partnership with the community because you don't, you don't want uh, to have to respond to every single thing. You want the community to be able to handle its own stuff legally, but to be able to supervise itself. That's how you have a community that, and that's why neighborhood watches were becoming so popular, uh, not, you know, a while ago was because if a community has its own system in place, then you don't even need law enforcement unless there's an emergency. So with unions, I think they just need to shift the culture so that they're more transparent. And if they don't do that, there's going to be, there's going to be trouble because we're going through this revolution due to that lack of transparency. Yeah. And like you said, ideally, that trust would be there. So there is protection on both sides. But it just seems impossible to build that trust when we continue to see our brothers and our sisters gun down videos on social media, on CNN and the news and all of that. And like Dev alluded to, 
they're almost protected as a community black people they feel as though like hey what's the point of me going to the station or going to the fbi or whoever to file a complaint when at the end of the day these guys are going to be protected nothing's going to happen to them matter of fact when they gun us down for the most part they're not even fired right away hey you just take a leave of absence you go home uh you stay with your family we'll figure this thing out or for them even to be arrested we have to go through a mountain of evidence before it's just like all right now we have enough evidence to arrest them where it's just like hey if me and dev go out and we're caught on camera and we're doing something that looks illegal we're going to be arrested asap and then once we're in custody all right hey now we'll go over the evidence we'll go over the details and we'll figure out hey whether we need to charge them this or charge them that it just feels like from a community standpoint hey these guys are the law they're above the law and we can't touch them right so accountability is what will breed uh as a part of this accountability will breed trust when when this happened to mr floyd i got a lot of calls from law enforcement leaders across the nation and the you know chief they fired these these guys immediately and the feedback from law enforcement some law enforcement in the early stages was they shouldn't have fired them they should have uh suspended them without pay pending the investigation and i said you kidding me you're gonna have fires burning like crazy if you don't fire these guys right away take the hit Whatever the legal fees are, whatever you have to pay to to make them earn their job back, that's what you do because they need to be fired or else towns are going to be burning down worse than they are now because society doesn't believe with many communities, society doesn't believe that there's going to be accountability. I mean, we've seen it time and time again. When, when, I remember when Walter Scott was shot in the back by Michael Slager in Charleston, South Carolina. I remember it's blatant murder. You're shooting a guy in the back eight times. I remember hearing from some people, well, you know, he, he, uh, Slager had obviously some psychological issues. So, you know, and I was like, where do you even, how do you even go down that path? That's murder. Let's call out what it is and call out what it is all the time. So when, when Mr. Floyd was choked out and killed, it's murder. Let's just say it. I, I have to give it to FOP, the Fraternal Order of Police, came out quickly within a couple of days to say that they were condemning it. And they never do that. They're always very conservative. They wait until investigation. But they came out immediately. And what that did was it... It gave permission to the whole industry to condemn it. This is what we need to do. We need to condemn bad behavior immediately and make people accountable. That's where the discipline comes in. So you got you have selection, you have training, and you have discipline. And discipline includes accountability, and you have to have it. If you don't have it, then the whole system goes awry. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, that's what's tough. And I, I commend you on trying to balance those two things. Like you talk about being in the community, being friends with a lot of officers and, and people in, in the department. How do you handle that? Like what is the balance of you kind of being pulled between both sides? And then um, 
how do you feel you know what do the good cops do in that situation like what do you say to them like hey man you're a good cop you have to x y and z when you see this and then what do you say to people in the community when you might feel like hey you know this person you know you got to do it this way like how do you you know handle both that relationship with both and then how do you talk to both uh trying to create you know the kind of understanding from the other side and trying to get different point of views in there so I, I've gotten to the point in my life, I'm 54 years old, and I've gotten to the point in my life where I've allowed myself to just be completely transparent with my life. Um, there's a certain level of vulnerability that you have when you start to become that transparent, and I'm good with that. And because I'm vulnerable to everybody, they know that I'm telling them the truth, and I'm telling them something that's coming from a genuine place because I want the best for them. This isn't partisan to me. This is about saving lives and it's about saving everybody's life and then allowing them to thrive. So it's about that. When they see that there's a genuineness, then all of, and I don't, I don't use the word sides for a reason. I say parties. So all parties are, they, they respond positively when they feel you're coming from a genuine place, even if it's not what they want to hear. They accept that you're coming from a genuine place. So that's how I how I handle it. And, you know, after all, this is what we want. We want to get to a place where we are one community, where it's not us versus them, where it's not um, the cops versus the community. It's we are one community The the law enforcement officers are an integral part of that community. And that's just another way of saying we want to get to a place of reconciliation. And reconciliation takes time. It takes a process. We have to start the process. And the process starts by just listening, listening to each other, allowing each other to be authentic and vulnerable. Your stories are so important. Telling your stories and listening to people as they tell their stories, we call it listening beautifully. Just listen beautifully to people so that you know who they are. You're learning and understanding who they are. And that's how it all balances out. Yes, at the, in the beginning, I'm telling you, 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 were, you were either taking one position or another. You know, being, being there for all people was not acceptable to many people. You had to be partisan. But... I never felt comfortable with partisanship. I always wanted to be there for everybody. And we are one community, so that's how we need to behave. And that's the approach that I take and that we take. Now, for a police officer, while they're on the job, and I, and I don't really know a lot about it, but um, are there kind of like checks and balances on their mental health and not just maybe when something comes up and there's a shooting or something like that, but just every so often, are there like checks and balances? They go through so much. Uh, like we said, we're, I, I can't stress enough um, how difficult it is, their job is. And I know there's dangers that go into it every single day when you go out and you're trying to serve the community. So I don't want to diminish that at all. Um, so are there checks and balances from a mental health standpoint just to make sure like, hey, they're healthy, they're doing well, and they're equipped to continue to go out and do their jobs well? They're doing better now. They, it used to be very reactive where if you know an incident happens, then you react to make sure they're okay, as opposed mm -hmm. to being proactive and making sure that once a year 
you go through an analysis to find out if you're okay. Because it, it's those micro incidents that wear on law enforcement officers. They see stuff every day, and they might be small things every day, but they accumulate so that it takes a toll. Law enforcement officers have, on average, a five-year lifespan after they retire. And there's a reason for that. They, they, they die because the adrenaline that pumps through their, their veins over and over again for over 20 years takes a toll on their heart. But they also die because this is who they are. So when they leave it, when they're given that badge and that gun, their identity has gone with it for many people. And we see, we see parallels with athletes in that, re in that respect. That you define yourself as a person by the badge you've carried, by the gun you've carried, by that authority. So when you leave, I often say, your heart is broken. So that's why their heart gives out. The combination of that adrenaline and then just being emotionally heartbroken, there's, uh, there's something to it. They die early, five years after. And, and so we have to get to the point where we are proactively monitoring law enforcement officers on a quarterly basis to make sure that they're okay. Because if not, if they're not okay, then the people they serve will not be okay, for sure. Um, as we shift a little bit and try to get into, you know, I think people have heard a lot of, you know, through the history of, of you know, police, community relations, just for black people in general, like we hit on that. As we move towards like the change, the how do we move forward? Um, I thought one thing was very interesting, just reading up on you, you referenced Martin Luther King and you spoke about, you know, Martin Luther King kind of knew what he was doing. He really wouldn't be able to see the impact, the change that he was creating, that he was causing. And he kind of knew that and he did it for others. Um, speak about what you mean when you say what he did and how that applies um, to you know, people in law enforcement, people in the community, um, at the, just everyone overall, like how do people have different roles um, and bring in that kind of perspective to light? That's a great question. And, and I, model, I model my philosophy about that long game. Uh, I model it against Martin Luther King because he knew, he knew before he was killed, he knew he had, his time was short. If you just review his speeches, you could see it in his eyes. He knew that something was going to happen to him. And it was just, I didn't, it wasn't going to necessarily be an outside force. His body was breaking down because he was giving so much of himself. But he also knew that what he was doing was not for himself. It was for the generations to come. He was doing something for his children and for his children's children. And that's what I look at this like. I'm doing this for generations to come because these are seeds that we're planting. These are very valuable seeds we're planting. And those trees won't sprout in two years, five years. It'll take 10, 15, 20, 30 years to see those beautiful trees. But if we don't do it, then we're leaving it to our kids to do it, to plant those seeds. 
And they'll have to go through what we're going through. And I don't want to see that. And so when we teach law enforcement, we teach the same philosophy. That this isn't about you. This is about your kids. So when you are learning how to serve better, you're learning how to serve better because you're doing it for your kids. You want to pass on generationally a more functional way of doing things. You're not going to see the benefits of this probably the way your kids will. But you don't want your kids to be put through what we are going through. I often say that my generation didn't, did your generation such a disservice because we were allowed to reap the benefits of those who were fire hosed and had dogs chewing at them and were walking to work instead of taking the bus. We received those benefits. We're on their shoulders, my generation. And when we got those benefits, we just laid back. And we didn't do anything to evolve it so that when you are the leaders, you get a better America than the one we got. Instead, we're passing on an America that is worse than the one we got. And you have to deal with all the mess that we allow to have happen. So it's my calling, my goal to make sure that we, our generation, tries to clean up what we've not done and what we have done so that you can have a better future and your kids could have a better future. Martin Luther King was all about the long game. And that's what we're about, the long game. This is important. This, there's no band-aids that can be put on this. This is all about how are we going to be in 10, 20 years? Are we going to have the same issues or are we going to have progressed? Yeah, and I think that's so true. And before I let Jay ask the next question, I just want to state I agree with you because I think even in the athletic world, I feel like that happened a little bit. When you think about Muhammad Ali, you think about Bill Russell, um, you think about all of these different people who stood up, you know, for the cause and for different individuals, you know, they could have lived a great life, played their sports, got famous, but they said, no, there was something bigger than us. Um, and I think after that, you know, the next wave of athletes all benefited. I mean, we all still benefit from that, but they didn't really jump in. So, you know, I, I really felt that, you know, what you said. Go ahead, Jay. Yeah, definitely. And um, the crazy thing is, like you said, when you talk about generations to generations, why now are we flipping this thing upside down uh, with uh, now we're back out. The last time was probably 30 years ago where the rioting and the looting and all of that has gone down. Um, through this time, there has continued to be police killings and different things to upset the black community. Why now are we seeing uh, just such an uproar and people just being totally thrilled with it and demanding change? Uh, what has changed from back then till now uh, throughout the generations? It's a great question. Somebody asked me that question the other day um, because Walter Scott, when he was shot in the back, we thought that might be that moment, but it didn't happen like this. And I think what happened is there's, there are two pieces to it. There's the cumulative effect of what has happened over the last six years. So when you have Tamir Rice and, you know, Michael Slager killing Walter Scott, Eric Garner, Michael Brown, when you have all of these things happen, and Sandra Bland, when you have all of these things happen, and then you look at 
then you're in the middle of a pandemic. So many people have an opportunity to stare at their phones for all day. And on your screen is somebody who is slowly, with, and it's grueling, killing somebody. You already know the outcome. So you know you're watching somebody die. That was the tipping point. Because it was that action, and then it was his, his, what he was doing with, or wasn't doing with his arms, which is he wasn't using them, which indicates that there was no struggle. So there was no reason for him to do what he was doing. And his face, his face was just blank. And then it had a little smirk on it. And so with all of that, people had enough. And that's what it took. It took Mr. Floyd giving his life in that grueling fashion for the world to notice. That's it. That's what happened. Uh, I mean, you can't say it any better way. And um, I think what we've realized through this is that um, the time to be aware, uh, the time to just talk about it, to have the conversation, it's kind of past. Uh, we're, we're well beyond that. Um, what are some specific things uh, that we need to change in order to see progress? And from your perspective, like you said, you're all about the long game. But what are some short term things and then some long term things that we can get working on right now? Because that's that's what I know Devin and myself within our locker room or uh, within our community. Different people are hitting you up. Um, your black friends are hitting you up like, man, I see you're doing this stuff. What can I do? Uh, your white friends are hitting you up and everybody. I've talked to so many people that I've talked about that. Hey, like I have a buddy that I haven't talked to in a while. He's hit me up and he's saying, hey, I'm thinking about you. And for some people, you sit there and you're angry because you're just like, well, why now? Like everything that's gone on has been going on. And then especially for guys in, in the NFL, you've been doing things for the last few years. But people have been doing things for years and years and decades on decades. But what are some of the things that we can tell them? It's just like, hey, here are some actionable things we can get started on short term and long term. Yeah, and, you know, I think, like Jay said, and, and uh, like Q was getting into, um, that action is what it's about. And um, it's been awesome, you know, as an athlete to see uh, different people that maybe the first time, the first go around, you know, kind of slid back, changed the channel and said, you know, let's stay, you know, let me just stay in my lane. Let me stay away from it. But Deb, Deb, speak, speaking of that, 
Like, how do you handle that when there might be somebody that you felt like, hey, like when you started talking about this, they didn't reach out, they didn't care. How do you handle that, that, hey, now maybe there are people reaching out to you that no one reached out four years ago when you put your fist up during the anthem or when you talked about racial inequalities and ways to fix it, but now they're reaching out. Are you angry, frustrated? Like, how, how, do you, how do you feel towards it and how do you deal with that? Um, I, I think it's, it's hurt. Uh, I think that's the biggest thing to take away from everything is you're just hurt because you knew, um, the back, I knew the backlash I was taking. Um, I knew people kind of looking at you differently. People who thought, especially me doing, I've done a ton in the community. I've been a leader on the team. You start getting people looking at you like, whoa, like you're that type of guy. Like I didn't know. <laughs> um, and it is like, it hurts you a little bit. And, and um, but I was very fortunate, you know, just happened to be in, in a chapel service one time and we were reading uh, from the book of Esther. And if anybody's read Esther, Esther is all about maybe you were made for a time just like this. And um, that really resonated with me. And from that point on, I was like, you know, whatever happens, like, I know I'm doing the right thing and I'm cool with that. And I think you fast forward now and people are coming back in. I have to make sure I check myself that I don't enter with bitterness, with that same hurt, because if I truly did move on from it and was okay with people not understanding because I felt, I felt like I was doing it for something bigger than me, not that you know I wasn't doing it for people to like me or love me or praise me. I didn't care that they gave me backlash. I didn't care that they cursed me out or that they hope I got cut or they hope I broke my leg. Like I didn't care about that. So now if I'm four years later and I'm in this place where people now want to text me, they want to call me, they want to talk, how can they help? I have to embrace that. You know, I can't hold the bitterness um, and resentment towards them uh, for being a little bit late. Like, hey, the party's still going on. And um, everything that we talked about a couple years ago that you just said people have talked about for decades, it's still going on. We need more people. We need, you know, we need new people. We need soldiers. We need people to come and get in and be hands-on. So I think uh, for me, for anyone, you have to embrace those people, help educate them, help tell them, you know, as Q was about to get into, tell them what they can do to help. Um, and let's go. Yeah. And, uh, and I think to what you're saying, um, the same thing goes. Everybody's been in uproar, uh, obviously, over Drew Brees, uh, over his comments. And obviously, we've made our comments and uh, we responded on Twitter. And I think that goes toward I know somebody had asked earlier, uh, do we forgive him? And I don't, I don't think any of this thing is about forgiveness. It's not about Drew Brees. It's not about Jason or Devin McCourty. It's about realizing, all right, here's an issue. And we need to find a solution for that issue. And it's not so much an issue like you don't have an issue with Drew Brees when he makes those statements. It's you have an issue with that train of thought. And that thought is what we're trying to move away from. So as soon as anyone who has that thought is willing to dive in and learn and open up dialogue to talk about like, because I think sometimes we subconsciously have thoughts that we don't know we have. And then we say some things and we may have to take some time to go back and self-reflect and be like, man, that's not what I meant. But it definitely sounded like that. Maybe I need to look inwardly and see like, hey, maybe I'm not looking at this thing the right way. And I think when we're able to do that, there's no animosity or hostility towards anyone because that's not what we're trying to do. You know, it's, it's about there's an issue and we want to fix this issue. So if we make it about someone's mad at this person or someone's mad at that person, 
it becomes about certain individuals or certain people and not the collective whole of trying to make things equal for all people. So I think, uh, like you just said, whether somebody's joining a party early, late, that's not um, what we're focused on. We're focused on how do we move this thing uh, going forward? Yeah, and I actually was just doing an interview with Peter King and he said, you know, how he grew up, you know, he said he grew up in Connecticut. He said his mom worked and his dad worked and they expected him to go to school and, and they put all that in front of him, but he worked his butt off. Like they didn't give him anything. He had to work hard. And he said, and he felt like that his whole life. Like, you know, I worked, I earned this, I got it. He said, and then he was having a, a conversation with Demario Davis and Demario was like, just think about the 17 year old black kid from some poor area that you think you worked hard, but it was expected of you go to for you to go to college. This kid grows up and it's expected of him to either sell drugs, hopefully if he's lucky, be an entertainer or an athlete, but overall it's drugs, it's crime, it's, it's end up in jail or dead. Think about what that looks like when those are your expectations. And he said to me, he said, when he said that, everything he thought was like, wow, like I was privileged. Like I did have it a lot easier than a lot of other people, even though I did work hard, it was a path in front of me that was already a little illuminated. It was already lit a little bit, which is different for other people. Um, and just him acknowledging that and us being able to be open and talk about that um, is exactly what you're talking about. It's not about forgiving or hating. Like, I never hated Drew Brees. I don't even know Drew Brees. You know, so it was never about that. It was just how can we get people to now not look through those lenses? And he's a guy who if he doesn't look those lenses, he can get a lot of other people to feel the same way. So uh, hopefully some good turns out from that. Yeah, definitely. And we have Q back uh, figuring out some stuff, uh, the technical difficulties, but we have Q back. And before... <laughs> Before you get back into those solutions, we ended up getting a question uh, from Mike Reese on uh, YouTube. Uh, he just quickly wanted to know who are your role models and how did they uh, shape the man that you've become? I had regular people who were my role models. Initially, I, was, I had role models. Tony Dorsett was the reason why I played football. He's the reason why I played, uh, played running back. So from an athletic standpoint, he was the guy. But I had just regular... A lawyer is the one who told me to go to law school, and he's a friend of mine, and if he didn't do that, my life would have been completely different. So I have all these role models. The number one role model was my mother. I would see the relationships that she built with people, just the most innocent relationships, and so she's the one who steeped in me the ability to build relationships. My brother and I both have that ability, and then the desire that's the, the most valuable thing we have with people are the relationships we have with them. So those just ordinary people are, uh, are those who I looked up to a lot of the time. Yeah. And then, uh, uh, hold on, Dev. And then another question here, and this one kind of will get into the solution. So I'm going to ask this one and then you can carry right on into some of the solutions and it may actually be a solution for you. But, uh, Phyllis Harrell asked, uh, and, um, how do we weed out the good police officers from the bad one? And I kind of had a comment on that. Uh, I talked to Deb earlier about this. Um, there are good cops, and we always talk about that 100%. There's probably way more good cops than there are bad cops. Uh, but for those good cops, 
not only how do we weed the bad ones out, but then how do good cops do that? Like, is there a safe space that, and is there a policy that, hey, if a good cop realizes, hey, there's another guy in my department, he's not doing things the right way. But if it's not an environment or there's an environment that he feels like, hey, if I complain, I may just lose my job and nothing will happen. How do we go about creating that safe space or creating policy in which uh, that transparency is welcomed and, and open? That's, that's a great question, and, and there is no consistency with it. It varies from agency to agency. The, the level of safety varies from agency to agency. But that comes from leadership. You know, leadership at the top has got to say, we are going to be accountable. We're going to be accountable for what we do. So there has got to be, this is all about culture. How do you shift culture from being the protective culture to being the transparent culture. And when we get to the place where we're a transparent culture, then we're going to have trust that builds up. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to have trust that builds up. But that's it's, it comes from leadership. From the top down, leadership has to build a culture that reinforces and encourages that there is accountability. And once you have that, that's the long game stuff. Again, long game. When you build that culture, you're building a long game. When you sweep it under the carpet, I don't want to do it, ignorance is bliss, that's a short game. That short game catches up to you if you don't handle that long game. We need to immediately, immediately stop being silent. That is the number one solution that we have to look at. No longer is silence acceptable in society. It's not. And that's what the protesters are saying. We can no longer have silence. There were three people who were silent while, and those were the three people who had the ability to save Mr. Floyd's life, and they were silent. The three other officers, they didn't do anything. Every bit of energy that was coming from the community could not save Mr. Floyd's life, no matter what they did. Because if they went and tackled the officer who had his knee on his neck, they would have been arrested, and who, who knows what would have happened. So the only three people who could have saved, saved Mr. Floyd's life were those three officers. No silence anymore cannot happen. It's unacceptable. And that's the number one solution that I'm telling people. They must create a culture that allows them not to have any silence. Definitely. And I want to allow you to get into the long term and short term uh, solutions before you got cut off on ways and actionable ways that people can go out and get involved and uh, what, what, what that looks like right now. Yeah, so, so short term, we have to, we have to come to the, re the realization that we, we have to get beyond awareness and we have, to, we have to get to action. So when we're talking about this reconciliation, we have to start by listening. So are we strong enough to listen? Are we, are we being beautiful in our listening, our ability to listen? This is a, a pretty, we can implement this quickly. When we're conscious of the way we are listening, listening to people, we will hold ourselves accountable. And so let's start there. Let's start with, we have to listen beautifully. And this, this doesn't just mean law enforcement community. This means in life, in general. We have to listen beautifully to each other and then learn and understand. And then we have to acknowledge these issues, current and our history. 
It's very uncomfortable for a lot of people to talk about our history. But we have to become comfortable with being uncomfortable. So when we talk about this, there can no longer be folks in the room saying, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about it or getting defensive and squashing the conversations. There has to be an embracement of this. So let's embrace where we are without silence and get to that place where we're acknowledging and then taking action. So this is what I, I tell people. This is one way to open up these conversations. It's such a great opportunity. We can, we can do things that bring us to the point of vulnerability. And that vulnerability is when, when somebody becomes vulnerable, when somebody says, hey, listen, I, I'm going to tell you my story. When they say, I'm going to tell you my story with transparency and I'm going to do it with courage, that opens up a connection. Oh, this, this is what I'm talking. This is why I do this. And you, you guys understand that. This is why I do it. <laughs> this is it right here. <laughs> okay, go over there, baby. I'm on the, I'm on the phone. When are you gonna so, get us our ice cream? We're going to get ice cream soon. <laughs> All right, when you can go over there. Five, five minutes. I'll do it in five minutes. <laughs> Tell this her we promise. It. We promise five minutes. So, so, so when we do when we do this with vulnerability and courage, this can be implemented immediately. Let's be vulnerable. Let's be courageous, and let's know why we're doing it. What is our why? Why are we doing this? Why do we want to? Why are you doing what you do? You don't have to do this. You're football players in the minds of many. Why do you care? We say the same thing for law enforcement officers. What is your why? And take that why and apply it to what you're doing. Because that is what's going to drive you to do the right thing. And you hear my, my babies with their, uh, with their, with their games. Yeah, Turn that we'll, down, baby. Thank you. We'll, uh, <laughs> we'll 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 get to wrapping this up. So, I just wanted to get one one of the uh, other questions uh, from Greg. Um, what are your thoughts on the use of tear gas and rubber bullets, even the uh, uh, mil uh, militia uh, of urban police? Not. I'm, I don't like warrior mentalities. I like a combination. Daddy, yes, baby. Okay, I'm clapping. I'm sorry. I love you. You can go over there. See, there you go. All right. <laughs> okay. I'm, I love you. So the warrior mentality. Okay, I got you, baby. I won't. I won't clap anymore. Snap, brother. Um, so the warrior mentality. So there's something called the warrior mentality, and police officers have been trained with this warrior mentality, because. A lot of them have come from the military. So that warrior mentality that we have in the military doesn't transfer over well to police work. It doesn't. Because 90, 80 to 90% of the work we do as law enforcement officers should be proactive, not reactive. Yet we take the, the warrior mentality of military personnel and we put them into these situations and they're taking those tactics and applying them. And that's not the way it should be. We do need warriors, 
but we need we need guardians too. So the the dichotomy of warrior and guardian is very important. And a student of mine, a law enforcement student of mine, came up with this wonderful. It was it's incredible uh, uh, application of both the warrior mentality and and the um, the guardian mentality together. And he calls it the champion mentality. You're a champion for the community. So when you need to be a warrior, you'll be a warrior. When you need to be a guardian, you'll be a guardian. But it's a combination of the two, and it's a judgment that one uses when to turn on one and when to turn it off that's important. It's the difference between life and death. So I like to espouse that we get into a new way of doing things as champions, champions for the community, not warriors. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, uh, go ahead. Uh, okay. And, and, you know, speaking of that, um, we just wanted to give you an opportunity because I think you covered a, a lot of things. Um, and now you have your own organization um, that you do have. And you look like it says dedicated to community. Um, just speak, you know, what that entails and what you're trying to do and how people can get more information and get involved uh, in what you're doing. I really appreciate that. So dedication to community, we spend most of our time, probably 70% of our time, in the area of public safety. And of that 70%, much of it is spent training law enforcement. And we, we, we are with the FBI at the FBI Academy. We have a course there where we train law enforcement officers how to serve, not how to police. And so D2C, dedication to community, is based in education. How? Because that's, that's how we solve this, is through education. This is not rocket science. It's just, are we, are we issuing the political will to do it? Do we care enough to do it? Now we do. So we educate law enforcement to serve better, and we also educate communities how to engage with law enforcement better and how to build these relationships. How are they building substantive and sustainable relationships? Not throwing barbecues and pizza parties, but how are they actually building relationships with vulnerability, courage, purpose, using the power they have and exhibiting to the world that we understand the struggles, we understand the pain. This is so important because it gives a foundation for relationships that will last sustainably until until we're not here anymore. So vulnerability, courage, purpose, power, pain is what we teach. And dedication to community is committed to it. We we are this is it. This is the calling of everybody involved. And we're so proud of the work we're doing. Um the work you're doing, the work that many of your colleagues are doing. It's all about saving lives and allowing our society members to thrive. And where can people go to get more information and learn about it and find ways to get involved and help? So if you just go to dedicationtocommunity.org, and it's spelled out fully, dedicationtocommunity.org, you'll, you'll be able to view what we do. And my book, I donated my book to Dedication to Community, D2C. So if, if you want the book, you can actually get it on the home page and just make a donation if you can. And we will send you out a book, and I'll even sign it. Uh, but this is important. 
Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, and we know the kids, they, they're ready to go get that ice cream. So we don't want to keep you any longer. Uh, we appreciate uh, the time that you've taken out to come on and talk uh, with us uh, with everything going on in our country. We appreciate uh, your perspective and your point of view. And uh, hopefully all of us together, black, white, yellow, uh, any color we are, can all come together and figure this thing out uh, as, as one whole family. Yeah, appreciate you. So J Mag, what 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 you got? How we how we gonna uh how we gonna wrap this up? Should I give a little food for thought? What we what are we thinking? Before you do, which you always do, which I enjoy, before you do, you guys, as you know, this is on YouTube, but as you guys know, uh, our double coverage podcast, you can find it on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, all of those good podcast uh, places, and then as well on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, uh, McCourty Twins, you can find the different stuff uh, we're doing. Obviously, right now, a lot of the stuff we're doing is going to be uh, about the issues that are going on uh, in our country, and, and, and that's going to be a lot of the focus, but uh, we appreciate you guys feedback whether it's comments dms or uh, whatever we try to read all of it so you guys can find us there and the floor is yours dev yep and, and i just want to end with what q talked about silence is not an option um a lot of people are looking for things to do start on the lowest level um, of just being able to talk to your friends talk to different people it doesn't have to be a black friend talk to anybody do not let your silence win in this do not be silent speak up speak out um and really i think more than anything um as both of us faithful men believe in god love will overpower and love will win uh, at the end of the day so let's love one one another and again silence is not an option thanks everybody for watching and remember mama we made it there we go See you guys, man. Have a good one.